I'm going to read one verse, 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 12, and then I want to introduce a little bit about what I'm going to be talking about, and then we'll kind of work through this and you'll see where I'm going. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 12. And by the way, I have a Bible here that has the NIV and the King James. It's one of those parallel Bibles. So occasionally I'll be reading out of the modern rendering, and occasionally I'll be reading out of the more historic rendering, and I think you'll be able to keep up. So I hope that's not a problem. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 12. The body is a unit. Though it is made up of many parts, and though all its parts are many, they form one body. Father, this morning we're going to talk about the body. We're going to talk about a local gathering of believers in the ancient world in a city called Corinth. And Paul is somewhat reproving these people. And our intention today is not to spank all of us. But our intention today is to ask us how or to what degree we are in alignment with your heart. So we're asking that you would work, that you would direct our steps, direct our minds, and may we have the courage and the insight to ask ourselves some very legitimate questions. And to this end, we'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, a couple things about Paul's letter to Corinth before we get into the material. By the way, we will be reading down to verse 27 in just a moment. Keep in mind, Paul had established this church on his second journey. He had stopped into the city of Corinth, was there approximately 18 months. Corinth was, some estimate, the third largest city in the Roman Empire at this point in time. We're probably around 54, 55 A.D., which means we're maybe 20, 22, 23 years past the work of Christ. So Paul has spent some time in Corinth. Rome was maybe a million people. The second largest was Alexandria, Egypt. Some would say 800, 900,000 people. Corinth, some estimate as many as 600,000 people living in the city of Corinth. Nothing even close to that here in Montana. And this is 2,000 years ago. Now, as we think about Corinth, now those of you who went to our adult Sunday school class and you kind of worked with us uh, several months as we went through the book of, of uh, Corinthians, you'll understand a little bit more about what I'm going to say, but I want to at least get this out. If you imagine the Mediterranean as a body of water, think about Europe along the north, think about the what's called the Levant along the eastern edge, um, Israel, uh, Lebanon, Syria, and then if you think about the underside, the south side of the Mediterranean, you see northern Africa. So if you think about all that ground in that big pool of water in the middle, that was the Roman Empire. Now, yes, there were a lot of people who moved around via caravan, traveled on all those Roman roads that we've heard about, 
but there was a tremendous amount of travel uh, in and through shipping and the maritime of that century. And if you were in the eastern part of the Mediterranean and you wanted to transition to the west, if you were shipping, you would tend to go through the city of Corinth and then you would go to the west. If you were in the west and you wanted to go to the east, you would tend to go through the city of Corinth and then complete your journey. Corinth was somewhat of a pinch point, whether you wanted to move to the west or whether you wanted to move to the east. So this was a tremendously busy city. Think of any major port city today, whether it's Los Angeles or whether it's any uh, along the uh, Gulf of Mexico or whether you think of some foreign port. Think of some very large, active city with a tremendous amount of movement going through. And think of all the different people, whether they were the African people, the Carthaginians or the Egyptians, whether they were the Jews or the Arabs, whether they were the Turks or the Greeks or the Romans or the Spanish or whomever you want to envision. This was a very large, multicultural, multi-ethnic city. The second thing I want to mention is this is a relatively new church. Again, Paul was there about 18 months. He had left. He was back into the city of Ephesus when he writes this letter. The church is maybe three or four years old. And at one point in chapter 3, he says, you know what, I can't even write to you as unto spiritual. I can't even really acknowledge you people are mature yet. So we've got to understand there's a real infancy, spiritual infancy in the mind of the people. Third thing I want to mention is how Romans viewed themselves. We have to go all the way back to Romulus and Remus, and I'm not talking Star Trek here. We're going back to around 750 B.C. when Rome understood it uh, to start with the birth of these two twin boys. You've got to understand that those two boys were understood to be the product or the union of a daughter of a king and the god Mars. So in the mind of the Roman, when they looked at themselves, they considered the blood of a god was literally flowing through their veins. In their mind, they were different than all other human creatures. Frankly, they were better than all other human creatures. And that's why God, and Mars was the god of war, but that's why their god had given them such great victory, had allowed them to, in essence, subjugate the, 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 the existing world, if you will. So as you think about this brand new church, God combing out a group of people, some of them Jews, some of them Romans, much of them in slavery. Think about all the different perspectives and feelings and thinking and positions and stature and cultures. This is a real hodgepodge of people. And Paul's trying to bring them into oneness. Now, if you know the book of 1 Corinthians, in chapter 12, verse 1, it says, Now considering spiritual gifts. Your Bible probably has some translation like that. 
Now considering, considering spiritual gifts. So chapters 12, 13, and 14 are talking about spiritual gifts. But in the midst of chapter 12, he spends an entire block of material talking about a body. So this is an analogy. This is an illustration. Paul's trying to get into the heart and mind of these people. So with all that in mind, read with me down to verse 27. Let's pick it up at verse 14. Now the body is not made up of one part, but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body. It would not for that reason cease to be part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body. It would not for that reason cease to be part of the body. Now let's pause for a moment and think about this. You're sitting in Corinth right now. It's around 55 A.D. You're maybe three to four years old in the Lord. And who knows whether you're a Roman of power and stature, or whether you're a slave, or whether you're a traitor in slaves, or whether you're a woman. I mean, there's all different kinds of things going on here. But we have to understand that Paul is addressing something when he's making these seemingly silly comments. I mean, can you imagine a foot saying to another part of the body, well, you know, I'm a foot, but if I'm not a hand, then I'm not part of the body. Well, how silly is that? And yet we have to pull back the curtain and try and ask ourselves, what point is he making? What must have been going on? What, these, what must these people have been saying or thinking for him to even make this silly statement? I suggest to you that there were probably people in this congregation who looked at others and said, you know what, I don't like these people. I really don't want to be a part of this. Paul says, well, can a foot say to the hand, because I'm not a hand, I'm not part of the body? In other words, you cannot declare that even though you're redeemed, you cannot declare that you're not part of the body. You can't make that declaration. That's not a right that you have. You are part of the body. If you've been redeemed, then you are part of the body. And because you are part of the body, you now become responsible for certain things. Let's continue reading. Verse 17. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But, verse 18, but, in fact, God has arranged the parts in the body, every one of them, just as He wanted them to be. And if there were all one part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, but one body. Now again, let's stop for a moment. Here's an assembly of people in the city of Corinth. Some of them are powerful Romans. 
Some of them are of the hierarchy of the Jewish synagogue. Some of them, no doubt, are at the lowest rungs of slavery of the time. Some of them are rich. Some of them are poor. Some of them are men and women. Some are old. Some are young. We've got quite a desperate group here, don't we? And Paul is trying to communicate to them that, you know what? The ground is level at the foot of the cross. It doesn't matter that you're a Roman. It doesn't matter that you're a Jew. It doesn't matter that you're an Assyrian or a Phoenician or an Egyptian or a Carthaginian. It doesn't matter what you are ethnically. It doesn't matter what you are socially. It doesn't matter what you are economically. It doesn't matter what your gender is. You're all one. He's really having to hammer this idea into these people. Let's pick it up, continuing verse 21. The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. The head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. Can you imagine some of those wealthy Romans? Those who have literally what you and I would call millions and millions of dollars living in these fabulous palatial type homes of the ancient world. Imagine yourself one of those. As a matter of fact, your home is large enough to literally house the assembly of the believers. Now, if you have a great memory, you can think back to last year when we looked at chapter 11. They were trying to have the Lord's table and some people were having a sumptuous meal and others were hungry, had nothing to eat. And Paul rebukes them for how they were conducting themselves, even during a common meal. So there's an awful lot of rips and tears within this body, and he's trying to address these things. Verse 22, on the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And the parts that we think are less honorable, we treat with special honor. The parts that are unpresentable, we treat with special modesty. While our presentable parts need no special treatment. But God, here we go again, but God has combined the members of the body and has given greater honor to the parts that lacked it. So that there should be no division, and I'm going to argue that maybe we should understand this as distinction, not so much division, but distinction in the body. But that its parts should have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. Now you, Corinthians, are the body of Christ. Wow. It's a powerful message if you think about it. Here are these people, some wealthy, some poor, some free, some slaves, some ethnic Romans, some ethnic Jews, others from different parts of the world. What a hodgepodge of people. They were really struggling being one. So from this text, I want to bring out three principles, and then we'll be done. Won't that be good? 
All right, three principles that I think apply, and it's true. I believe these are true, whether it's us in Cardwell, Montana, or anywhere across the globe. Principle number one, no Christian can be all that God wants him to be apart from the body. No Christian can be all that God wants him to be apart from a body. Now get that out of verse 21. The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. The head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. Now, if someone truly felt that way, that would be pretty evil. And I'm certainly not charging anyone here with that level of malevolence. But let's be frank. There is the potential of a casual indifference toward others, is there not? I mean, we can be part of a church assembly, whether it's in Cardwell or Bozeman or Seattle or Los Angeles or New York or wherever it is. We can be part of a body, can we not? And literally attend for years. And yes, we may have shaken hands with someone or given them kind of a, a kind hug and yet not know them at all. And for many of us, we don't make any effort to know them at all. We have our own little circle of people. We have the folks that we've known for years. Every time there's a fellowship meal out there, it's the same people sitting at the same tables, having similar conversations to every other time they sat at the same table. And for all intents and purposes, and again, I'm not, I'm not saying this in an evil way, but for all intents and purposes, we're saying, I don't need you. I have my own little group of people. I have my own connections. I have my own family. And yes, the church is big and that's great and we're fine, but you know what? I don't need you. And again, we're not saying that in an evil sense. But are we not in some passive way saying that? When was the last time you opened your home for someone, for dinner? When's the last time you had them over for lunch? When's the last time you met the ladies or the, or the fellas at some place for breakfast? When's the last time you went out of your way to get to know someone that though you've seen them for weeks and months and maybe years, but you don't know them? And you know what? In some sense, we don't care that we don't know them. But Paul says you can't say that. That's not the heart of God. You can't say, I don't need you. Because God says you do need them. I mean, he says here, on the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. You know that everyone in here is indispensable? You know that? Do, do we understand from this text that Paul is telling the Corinthians that it is God that has been the one who's combed people out and brought them together into an assembly? That this is a work of God? And that if we are not honoring this local body of people, then we are not honoring the work of God. I don't know that we think about our church that way. For many of us, because it's Sunday, we show up. 
but we don't necessarily think further about it. There's a whole bunch of passages in the New Testament. We're all familiar with them. They're called the one another passages. Honor one another, accept one another, serve one another, submit to one another, encourage one another, love one another, bear one another's burdens, right? We've all heard them. They're done within the context of a local assembly of people. It's relationships. It's getting to know the body. It's getting to recognize that there is no one in here that is indispensable. There's no one that we can somehow layer them as less important. And that brings me into the second principle. And that's this. No Christian should be viewed as more important than any other. No Christian should be viewed as more important than any other. And I get that out of verse 22. On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. I think in many instances, we've confused function with importance. And I'll illustrate that by saying this. Have you ever heard anyone say, well, that's the pastor's job? That's the pastor's job? Where does it say that in here? Where, where does it say that's the pastor's job? I want you to turn over to Ephesians chapter 4 with me for a moment. Now this is a hobby horse of mine, so forgive me up front. Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, beginning at verse 11. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11. And I'm going to read this out of the Old English, the King James. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11. And he gave some apostles, and some prophets, and some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. Why? Why did God do that? Why did God gift a body with those offices? Well, he tells us. Verse 12, for the perfecting of the saints. For the perfecting of the saints. Now, that's a phrase we don't necessarily like because in our minds, in our modern linguistic usage, perfect is something that is, well, perfect. And you and I know we can't be perfect. So in some cases, we'll take a verse like this and we'll kind of push it off into something that isn't realistic. Well, it must be talking about the future sometime. If you were a fisherman and it was your job to bring in the fish and make the money for your family and feed your family, and you looked at your nets one morning and there was a big rip, a big tear in your net, well, before you went fishing, you would mend the net. That's the word here for perfect. It has the idea of restoring it to its maximal use. To bring it to a point of completion so it can function as created. 
That's what it means to perfect the saints. Now, we can say that's the pastor's job. That's his job description right here. If you walked up to William Grinder and said, what's your job description? He could quote Ephesians 4.12 and say, to perfect the saints. But here's the important part. It's the next phrase. Because the next phrase says what? For the work of the ministry. You know who that's referring to? The saints. If you're here this morning and you're born again from the Spirit of God, you're regenerated, you've been made alive in Christ, you are in the ministry. It isn't just the man up here. You can't just say, well, that's the pastor's job. No, it's your job. And it's your job. And it's your job. And it's your job. You have been brought into the body of Christ, and you have been brought to a point of completion, a point of perfection, so that you, corporately, can carry out the work of the ministry. What has happened in the modern church is we have, in essence, assigned unto the pastor all of these various jobs and responsibilities. So when we, as the modern church, show up, we can critique his message. We can critique the music. We can critique the leadership. We can critique the Sunday school class. We can go through and critique all the various portions of the ministry. And then we can ascribe blame to whomever it is that's overseeing that. Because we're not in the ministry. They are. There's only one problem with that. You must have got that out of the Bible because you didn't get it in the Bible. Right? Body, the, the, the Bible says when the body gathers together, everyone has a function. Everyone has a purpose. As we said here a moment ago, everyone is indispensable. Let me illustrate what I'm saying. Next Sunday, Pastor Grinder should be sitting right here. Right? And whoever leads the music next Sunday, let's assume it's Paul for a moment. When Paul gets done, he'll say, you may be seated. And every one of us at that moment will think, that's when Pastor Grinder gets up and walks up here. But think with me for a moment. What if between now and next Sunday, he had zero thought? about next Sunday. He had made zero preparation. He had thought nothing about preaching. He hadn't even spent time in prayer this week. But because the calendar said next Sunday was up, he walked in the building like most of us will. But when the song leader says, you may be seated, he doesn't get up. you would hear a pin drop. And pretty soon people would begin to look around like, what's going on? 
Why isn't the pastor getting up and walking into the pulpit? Pretty soon you'd start to hear comments and whispering and chittering and chattering. And everyone would wonder, why isn't William Grinder getting up and walking into the pulpit? Well, let's all ask ourselves a question. When we all gather next Sunday, by the grace of God, how many of us will have prepared for our ministry next Sunday? Or how many of us will just show up because the calendar says it's Sunday? But we will have made no preparation of heart, of mind. We will have really had no thought of any type of ministry toward other people. We're just going to show up. And we're going to see if we get a blessing. Because after all, is that what church is about? That I get a blessing? Oh, that church isn't friendly. Oh, that pe preacher, he can't even preach himself out of a paper bag. You know, I mean, we have all kinds of criticisms. Where's your ministry? What is your ministry? That leads me into principle number three. Principle number three, no Christian is exempt from the work and responsibility of creating a completed body. No Christian is exempt from the work and responsibility of creating a completed body. I get that out of verses 25 and 26. I am back in 1 Corinthians, by the way. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 25 and 26 so that there should be no division, and again, I would argue for the concept of distinction, that there should be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern one for another. Equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. He's saying there should be a mutuality amongst us. Doesn't matter whether we're Roman, whether we're Greek, whether we're a Jew, whether we're from Carthage, doesn't matter whether we're rich, whether we own this big palatial home, or whether we're a servant of some family down the road, doesn't matter whether we're male, doesn't matter whether we're female, young, old, doesn't matter. All those distinctions are created in the human mind. Paul is arguing here and in the book of Ephesians that all of that has been obliterated in Christ. And that we are now one body. Yes, there's diversity of gifts and yes, there's diversity of functions and so on. And there must be diversity in the sense of unity, and there must be unity in the sense of diversity. He's arguing for both at the same time. But I close by asking you to come back to Ephesians 4 with me. And just to kind of put a bow on the box. Ephesians chapter 4, I want to read again from verse 11, but I want to go down now through 16. 
So read with me Ephesians 4, 11 through 16. And it was he, I'm going to read the NIV. And it was he who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, and some to be pastors and teachers to prepare God's people for works of service. That's you and me. And what will the result of that be? So that the body of Christ may be built up. And my friends, we're talking about a local assembly of believers. That as the pastor completes his function, described in the beginning of verse 12, that as he perfects the saints, as the saints then continue to gather together and fulfill their work of ministry, the result of their work of ministry will be the building of the body. Verse 13, how long? How long do we do this? Verse 13, until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature. That's how long you do it. Until everyone becomes mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Is that your outlook as you look at your brother and sister in Christ in this church? That your goal each week is to so prepare your heart and mind so that when you come and you gather together and you have some form of ministry toward others, that your intention is to see them become mature? to see them attain to that whole measure of the fullness of Christ in them? Is that your goal? Is that your ministry? It should be. Verse 14. Then we will no longer be infants, tossed back and forth by the waves, blown here and there by every wind of teaching, by the cunning and craftiness of men and their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up into Him who is the head, that is, Christ. From Him the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. I don't care who you are here this morning. You are indispensable. Now, you may not have the same function as William Grinder, And technically, in our modern Western culture, we only refer to him as a shepherd, a pastor, but theologically speaking, every one of us is in the ministry. Every one of us is in process of being perfected, made whole, made complete, so that we each can carry out the work of ministry, which will result then in the building of this body. That's your job. It's not the pastor's job. It's your job my job. So we need to ask ourselves, when you show up here next Sunday, by the grace of God, how many of you will come with a mind and heart filled 
with the intention of ministry. Not his ministry, your ministry. Who will you expend that effort toward? Who will become your target to build them up, to encourage them, to strengthen them, to see them reach the fullness of the stature in Christ? Who are you looking at? Who are you aiming at? Who will be the target of your prayer and effort this week? That's what Paul is asking the Corinthians. And I think that's what God might be asking us. Let's pray. Our Father, it is your work to bring us to life in Christ. We then co-labor with you to reach others. Yes, some to reach evangelistically, but also some to reach in spiritual encouragement. We are to bear one another's burdens. We who are strong are to strengthen the weak. We are to serve one another. We are to love one another. We are to encourage one another. If we come simply to critique, then we are failing to fulfill our calling. Help us to be mindful of your truth, and we'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.
its way. I'd rather have Jesus than anything this world affords today. I'd rather have Jesus than This world.